So welcome back. Welcome back to the collective that we are called the church. Those who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so, based on that very solid truth in all of our lives, today's sermon, Psalm 51, kind of highlights that a good amount, especially for us. Like, we're coming through, and this has always been about the intimate relationship with God. And we've talked certainly about religion and trying to climb up a spiritual ladder in order to appease Him. But as we've just listened to some pretty amazing songs and hopefully read those lyrics of those songs, man, it's all God. I can't take the credit. None of us can take the credit. And so as we approach Psalm 51, just to give you a little bit of background about it, uh, David wrote this one and David wrote this psalm after a gigantic mistake in his life. <laughs> a gigantic, huge mistake in his life. But the thing about this is, is that it doesn't ultimately deal with David's mistake. It's praise the Lord that he wrote it as he did, because this is just as relevant for David as it is for us, because this is what God does within each of us. And while certainly that title is a little bit of a stretch and it's not easily repeatable, Understand first and foremost that this is always about an inside-out transformation. Inside-out. Jesus changes lives, and it starts from the inside to the outside. And very simply to try to explain that in another way, excellent theology and understanding who God is and then understanding who we are in light of who God is, understanding what's wrong with this world and everything else leads to better movements, better hands and feet movements and choices and decisions that you and I make on an everyday basis. And so this is a highlight to show us what God is doing in our lives and then certainly to appreciate all of the grace, the unmerited favor that he gives each and every one of us seemingly all the time. So praise the Lord on that. Dear Heavenly Father, as always, I thank you for all the blessings in our lives, especially those that we fail to see. And Lord Jesus, while certainly the inside-out transformation isn't always easy to see, we can see a lot of times the fruits of the Spirit in the hearts of your children. They are filled with love. They are filled with joy. They are filled with peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As this is who you are, Lord, as well as your mercy, your forgiveness, and your steadfast love. And so, Lord Jesus, certainly use this time well. Convict us on whatever we might need to be convicted on but certainly keep the condemnation of the devil away from us. And certainly may this morning be filled with righteousness and peace and joy as is your kingdom, as it is our great honor to be able to know you, to love you, and to serve you. So thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Psalm 51. Chris, did we have a page number? I didn't. I totally space cadet it. 525, all right. 524, in the blue Bibles and the seat backs in front of you, page 524. Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, for the sacrifices of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And... Quite a word it is, and quite a word that it is from David. And so, you know, I suppose we could get all on the same page again this week, too. So have any of us had an impure thought this week? Have any of us, you know, maybe turned a, a left turn at Albuquerque in the middle of love and started hating because, you know, the driver really slowed down and slammed down his brakes in front of you? And, you know, it's in your heart. And that's the problem with sin, is that it is in your heart. And it's the culture that feeds it around us. And so we do have an opportunity to be transparent with God. Because it's hard for us to be transparent even with ourselves. A lot of times we justify things that we know are wrong. And justification means to declare something righteous. And so as we justify and declare bad behavior is righteous, certainly in the heart and whatnot, feeds. And so David had this same problem. Maybe it's not as catastrophic as sending your best friend to go die on the battlefield so that you can sleep with his wife. But at the same time, a sin is a sin. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption and the propitiation through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is all a work of God. And I want you to see, especially in this first point, and talking about please, and you know, you can see all the points there. It's please, confession, and avow. 
And that is something that we can take to the Lord all the time. And please, especially, not like please and thank you, but please, as in please, Lord, and I have a plea, would you help me? And it goes, and I'm going to tell you, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture comes in verse 12 of this, where verse 12 very specifically says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And as we've gone through the Psalms, I've talked about the willingness certainly a lot. And isn't that what God needs from us? If anything, is a willingness to be used and to be a servant for the Lord. But I want to start with the words that I have in here, a plea. And I looked it up, and I did a whole lot of research on these words because I always want us to be accurate. As we've talked about love, love means something very different in our culture than what it did in biblical times. Hope is very different in our culture as opposed to biblical times. And so a plea is relatively the same thing. And understand that it's a favor According to uh, Strong's Concordance, Hebrew, it's word 8467, means favor or supplication for favor. And then I'm like, okay, well, that you know doesn't help a ton for a de- understanding a definition. So we've got favor. We understand what favor is, getting something. We could call that grace in, in a sense too, unmerited favor, getting something you don't deserve. But a supplication doesn't actually show up until the New Testament. And so... The G1162, standing for Greek, it's a need. It's an entreaty. And it's used as the word supplication or at times prayer as well. The helps word studies helps to find supplication as praying for a specific felt need. It is a heartfelt petition arising out of deep personal need because there is a sense of lack which means that we want. And so when we entreat, we ask someone earnestly or anxiously to do something on our behalf. Maybe not something we necessarily deserve or are warranted, but respect that we are asking someone earnestly. And so all of that to help us understand that a plea is certainly asking God for something that we don't deserve. And isn't that essentially kind of always the case? But isn't it amazing grace that we can even do that in the first place? And yet people are like, I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to talk to God. I don't know how to... We're trying to help. And that's part of what this is as well. Want to make sure that all of us can stand confidently at the gates, knowing certainly that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. It is not by something we have done. If anything, in this, and I want you to look at these first two verses, if you want to see what man does in this, you can see that man needs mercy, man needs his transgressions blotted out, man has iniquity, and man has sin doesn't leave us in a very strong position to be pleading with God, especially when, as we read through the psalm, against you, you only, Lord, have I sinned. 
and we'll get to that later. But look at what God has done in just these first two verses. Again, the balance, the arc, if you will, between legalism and lawlessness, between holiness and sin. And so God's position in this is he has steadfast love. He has abundant mercy. God can wash away sin, and God can cleanse us from sin. So David, in his weakness of needing mercy, needing his transgressions blotted out, his iniquity, his sin, all in all, he can have confidence because of the grace that God has shown him, because God's not going to abandon what he has started by any stretch of the imagination. He's going to finish what he started. And as you see, certainly in these first two verses, that God's unmerited favor, his grace, is able to answer David, David's pleas for mercy and forgiveness. Because these are things that we can't handle. And it's been proven time and time and time again. You can read the entirety of the Old Testament. You can read the New Testament. You can watch the news of today. And you can still see people behaving poorly and uncontrolled because whether it's a temptation from within or whether it's a trial from without, sin has massive damaging effects. And we've just seen that and experienced that too, some of us, as we know from you know, other churches that we love and people that we care for, that while they had nothing to do with it, the sin grenade that exploded damaged each and every one of them. And that's the tragedy of sin and our lives. We're not focusing on it by any stretch of the imagination, and I don't ever want us to ultimately focus on it, but we need to be aware of it. You need to be conscious of it. I was able to talk with a brother this morning, too, and you think about what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, especially regarding our judgment. It's like, don't be condemning, because you're no better than them. You're like, I'm not that bad. Well, you're bad enough, and you need to realize that, that you're bad enough. And so don't be condemning. And then he says also, don't be naive. Like, don't just willy-nilly help. Don't give dogs what is holy, and don't throw your pearls at pigs. Because your time, your effort, your energy, your life, everything is valuable. And don't waste your time. Don't be naive thinking that you're going to change these people. But he tells us in the middle to use discernment. Be wise in your decision making. Use judgment appropriately. Because judgment is part of being created in the image of God. Judgment is a part of who we are because we serve the righteous judge than a God who faces indignation from the world each and every day. And so God's unmerited favor certainly can handle this. And that is God's purpose, as we've been explaining. It is entirely about salvation. The prosperity gospel, the health and wealth things that you hear about, that is not what it is about. It is about the salvation of the sinner and to be restored to a right and a real relationship with your Creator. That's what God's for. David knows that. And David goes and talks to God about it. And he knows he needs mercy. He knows he needs forgiveness. Do we know we need mercy? 
Do we know we need forgiveness? I hope the answer is yes. But the answer is yes because God revealed that to you. Not because of your own passions. Because again, remember, we justify everything and declare the most obnoxious things righteous at times. But <clears throat> as we move on to the second point, we see that David does understand this. And that too is a gift from God that we can be grateful for, that we can worship and praise him this morning for, because he does offer us mercy. He doesn't give us the punishment we so rightly deserve because of our sins. And he forgives us and he welcomes us back into his arms and into his loving kingdom, adopting us as sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. Truly amazing grace is an understatement of what God has done for each and every one of us as sinners. We go into point two. This is the confession part. There's a lot of pleas. There's a lot of asking in this, but this is the one confession part to understand. And David says he knows his transgressions and his sins before him. Against him only, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. A confession ultimately is what you see in these four verses, three, four, five, and six. It's an admission or acknowledgement of sin. A confession is also a declaration or profession of faith, belief, or trust. Confession may also indicate an admission of sin to another believer. <coughs> Excuse me. That comes from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. So confession is agreeing with God. Look at verse 4 very specifically in this. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight or God's sight. And again, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God is both the accuser and the judge in this situation. And he is both the accuser and the judge in every human being's situation. For we were created for worship. We were created for praise. But unfortunately, when sin entered the world, we want the worship and we want the praise now. As opposed to, and again, this falls into the justifying. This falls into... Think about our actions. Think about what leads us astray. Think about how we miss the mark of glorifying God and how maybe we glorify ourselves. So he talks about this. And again, I don't want to make it a big deal, but it's important to be aware of these things. He's described sin again in like the Trinity, if you will, in a sense, because he's mentioned transgressions. That's a sin. He's mentioned sin as a sin, and he's mentioned iniquity as a sin. Kind of the Trinity. Transgression is our ultimate rebellion against God. I know of him. I've heard of him. I don't really care to follow him. So you don't really know him. You just know of him. And you're going to rebel against him because it doesn't matter what God says. I want what I want when I want it. And that's what happened to David. It's what continues to happen in the world around us today, too. 
Then we have sin, the word sin in and of itself. And that's the turning from the true path, as described in the Old Testament or in Hebrew. In the New Testament, this follows along with, very similarly, the word hamarsha, which means missing the mark. We fail to glorify God as we were created to do, and we glorify and worship other people, or more importantly, ourselves at times. And then iniquity is that guilt. It's that shame. It's that Garden of Eden type of, I just transgressed against God, and now I've got guilt and shame because I realize I'm naked now, like Adam and Eve, and then they went to hide. And so iniquity includes that perversion, that evil, that disrespect for God ultimately in his law. And so if we break down these four verses for our understanding a little better, David knows in verse 3 and verse 5 that he has a gigantic transgression, sin, and iniquity problem that is deep-rooted and problematic since his birth. I hope we can all come to that as well and understand that this is a gigantic problem. And it's problematic. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I don't know what David's mother did. There wasn't even talk of David's mother in Scripture. But, as David has said here, certainly. But we are born sinners. We look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're born spiritually dead to God. We don't ultimately care about what God says. We just know what's in front of us, what we can touch and see and feel, not realizing that this is all much bigger than we've ever thought or imagined. So David knows he has that problem in verse 3 and 5, and God in this, and again highlighting his grace and his kindness and his mercy and his love, God is the one who gave David knowledge of the truth by teaching him that godly wisdom. Look at verse 4 and verse 6. Like I said, against you, only you have I sinned, done what's evil in your sight, so that God's words can be justified and blameless in his judgment. <coughs> and then verse 6, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. I'd love to expand on that, but we're going to expand on that in two more points from now. But God is also who David sinned against in verse 4. And he's David's accuser and his judge. And does God, to David, show mercy or justice to David? The answer is he showed mercy. And for all of us who know the Lord Jesus and have an intimate relationship with him, he will continue to show that mercy. For he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has chosen you as a people for his own possession. He will not forsake or abandon you. And again, amazing grace is an understatement for the glory of God and the kindness that he shows to people who are vehemently against him and angry against him. Repentance by grace, transparency, and honesty with God through confession. And again, this all feeds back into that transparency with God, our relationship. And it's through repentance, and we're going to go into a more definition of that as well, too. But this is all by grace. This isn't something that, that we wake up one morning and go, you know what? I need to repent. 
I need to tell God I'm sorry. Unless you've been pursued, unless you've seen his loving kindness, until we've tasted and seen that the Lord's good, certainly. It's very hard for other people to understand what I'm discussing here. But this is how God operates. And it's always been an inside-out transformation, which is countercultural to the world because the world says, well, if you just give more or if you just serve more or if you just love more, well, then you'll make yourself better. I agree with Solomon. In making many books, there is no end and much study is weariness of the flesh. It's no wonder that self-help books where we're going to fix something that's broken, like, again, it blows my mind, but this is how we think, all we like sheep, right? I don't know how something that's broken is going to fix itself. Does that make any sense to anybody? How does something that is broken going to fix itself? And unfortunately, that's how society thinks and believes. That's what culture teaches us. But God is the one who fixes the broken, always has. And much like a sermon is meant for certainly theological instruction and knowledge, it's meant for application for life, and it's certainly made also to be practical and to highlight. But most importantly, what a sermon is meant to do, oddly enough, is to create worship and praise for God. And I hope that's what we do on a weekly basis. Because he is worthy of praise, much like the songs that we've sung today. Those were great. Those were perfect, again. By God's grace and God's will, using the Holy Spirit, man, Kim chose great songs. Praise the Lord in that. Now, we go to the next section. And these next three, four really go together. And even four and five go together. It's almost like it's one psalm altogether, right? I'm kidding. So point three, it's another plea. It's another asking for something that we can't do for ourselves, let alone don't deserve for ourselves. And it's the cleansing from sin. And again, to remember asking that we are, but total cleansing, total cleansing from the sin to allow and the restoration of our relationship. Because again, we talk about this a lot in many different sermons. We've got a holy God, and then we've got a sinner. And God's holiness and righteousness will have very little to do with sin. And we can't be together with him unless something happens. And again, that's the Lord Jesus as our great mediator, as our great high priest who atoned for our sins, so that he could reconcile us to that right and real relationship from a holy God to a broken sinner that seemingly does no good. Harsh. But isn't that what we need? Isn't that what God has accomplished? And David's highlighting it before Jesus is even on the scene because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has always saved based on faith, based on trust, who has never adherence to the law, which again, very countercultural because culture says, well, you've got to adhere to all this. Now, I'm not ever preaching lawlessness. God has a right way, and certainly we want to walk in those blessings 
that God has created for us. But at the same time, no one is saved by the law. No one comes to Christ by the law. No one, ultimately, because through the law, as Paul wrote in Romans, comes the knowledge of sin. So it helps us to understand. It's another gift of grace in order to reconcile us to that right and real relationship. And so man's task in this, David needs a purging or a cleansing. He needs to be washed and he needs his iniquities blotted out, just like in the very first verse. And then what God does in this, God can clean sin. He can wash it away through the atoning blood of Christ. He can blot out our transgressions so that when he looks at us, he sees his son through us, holy and righteous and good. It's truly amazing. Again, nothing short. Amazing grace is an understatement by far. God also in this, you see, restores joy and gladness in a broken relationship. Because that's exactly what had happened. David walked away from God's wisdom, from the prophet Nathan too, in that time, and did what he wanted to do. Because he wanted to. There's really no other reason. I don't, like, there wasn't, like, why would you send Uriah to the battlefield to die? It makes no sense, right? But God can restore that joy in our relationship too. And again, it is all about the relationship. This isn't a one-time thing done. For most people, they're like, yeah, I repented once. I'm good. I did it way back when I was first converted. I don't attend services anymore. I really don't, you know, worship God on a regular basis anymore. I, don't, I repented once. It's an ongoing thing. And I think it's something that certainly we don't want to talk about because it can become offensive. It can become legalism, right? Like, oh, you're a terrible human being. You're this, you're that, you're blah, blah, blah. That's not what we want either. We don't want to end up in legalism and we don't want to end up in lawlessness. We're walking a very fine line of grace and truth in our lives. And we have to almost unlearn everything in order to relearn how to walk this walk when Christ comes within our lives. But God restores that joy and that gladness and the broken relationship, and it's that grace that leads to repentance and that leads to our pleas for removal of sin from self. And absolutely, David needs it just as much as I need it, just as much as you all need it, just as much as the people that know of Jesus needs it, but they need to know Jesus. It's a big difference between knowing of Jesus and knowing Jesus in our lives. And so God can cleanse us from that sin. And the reason why we want to be cleansed from that sin is the next point. Because we need that spiritual renewal. We need certainly to be made alive in him. We've been dead. We've been dead to ourselves. We were born spiritually dead. We need to be spiritually awakened in all of this. And so this highlights the inside-out transformation that every human being on the entire planet needs. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then, of course, 
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit, a willing one, not one that wants to sit down like Moses <laughs> and me back in the day, but a willing spirit. And again, inside out, a clean heart leads to wise deeds in its simplicity because you know what God's will is, you will make better decisions in your day-to-day -day life. And that's what we all want, right? We all want to make better decisions. Again, be careful because this isn't all about us. But the benefits to us are benefits that you can't buy. You can't do this yourself. You can't earn these benefits. These are by grace. These are by God's kindness. This ultimately is by his steadfast love. If we look at the very first verse, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love. And it's just within that, absolutely, that we have this. And so look at everything listed here too. Everything listed here is entirely an act of grace of God in verse 10, 11, and 12. Can you create your clean heart for yourself? Can you renew a right spirit within you? Can, can you make God not cast you out of his presence? Can, can you make God not take his Holy Spirit from you, ultimately? Can you restore the joy of your salvation? You can choose joy. You always have the choice for joy. You really do. But that joy of salvation, that comes from God. And the willing spirit, that certainly comes from God, too. And the point ultimately highlights what everybody needs, as well as our need for transparency with God through repentance by grace. God desires this relationship. Quit lying to yourself because you can't lie to God. <laughs> so when we lie to ourselves, it's fruitless. Why mislead yourself? Why justify things that we know are wrong in the sense that we want to be renewed? We want to be in that right, real relationship with our Creator. We want to love as we were made to love. We want to work as we were led to work. We want to have joy as we were meant to have joy. And certainly, <clears throat> we want that relationship with our Lord from now through ever. And so, moving on then, and I'm always super careful with this because a vow, a vow... Oh, man. I was going to open up the book of Ecclesiastes for you in this because what he says in the beginning of chapter 5 about fearing God and talking about vows, I'm not going to. I'm going to let you have that option yourself if you want to talk about a vow. But ultimately, vows are a binding promise made to God, often as part of a plea for safety, a military victory, family, sin issues, so on and so forth. Vows generally appear in the Old Testament narratives as conditional promises in the form of, if this happens, then I'll do that. And I know we all have done this. It's just it's the same as the Old Testament. We do it in the New Testament as well. God, if you just fix this then I'll do that. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't do that. <laughs> For your own good, 
because a lot of times we overpromise and underdeliver. And as a human earthly sales rep for many, many, many years, that was a cardinal sin to me in dealing with other people because I seriously would demolish trust if I overpromised them and then could not deliver on that promise. So be careful what you promise to God. Make no mistake about it. But notice, certainly, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. It really starts in verse 10 through 12, and then that's the if. 10 through 12 is the if. If you create in me a clean heart, O God, and not cast me away and restore the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And then he has another if-then statement in verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, and then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Be careful in this. Again, what David's promising too in this is stuff that God does through us as another act of grace. When we open our mouths and pray that the Lord certainly fills our mouths, that we may speak intelligibly and honestly and humbly in, in an effort to others, that's the work of God. Be careful. So it's very human to barter with God and to make a vow. Make no mistake about it, but he does this. And so we see these if-then clauses, but I want you to see verse 17 in this section. and It's the very last verse in that. It's the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And that is true. And so when we talk about repentance, we talk about its initial definition, which means to turn, to turn from your way back to God's way. But when we also talk about repentance, we talk about the three C's of repentance at times. And this verse, well, really the whole psalm has the three C's within it, but this verse has two of the three C's within it. The very first C kind of came in point two. It's a heart confession. A heart confession. The second comes from verse 17 here. It's contrition, a contrite heart, a sorrowful heart a regretful heart, one that knows that it has made a mistake and is literally begging for mercy. That's the second C, contrition. And all three C's have to do with our heart, okay? It's that heartfelt confession, honesty, humility before God. Like, that's why they got in sackcloth. That's why they were on their knees. Like, most of us don't even bother to get to our knees anymore. But in the Old Testament, you see how serious their confessions were in wearing sackcloth, getting on knees, fasting, not eating, doing all kinds of things to say they're sorry in that sense. And then, of course, that contrition. And then the last C is the willing heart conversion. And all of those are gifts of grace by God because in order to have a heartfelt confession with God, you must believe he's real and that he exists, like the author of Hebrews says. 
It's impossible to please God without faith, for you must believe that he's real and exists. If you're ever going to have that type of conversation with God, it's a gift of God. The heart contrition. Why am I sorry for things that I'm not paying for in the moment? Because it's a much bigger picture, right? But until I saw that bigger picture, because the Lord was pleased to reveal his son to me, I couldn't have that contrition of being sorrowful. I couldn't repent properly to him. Because again, I do that, right? Not God, I do that. I'm earthly, survival of the fittest. I do that. And then that conversion and that willing heart part of it that is so important in our repentance. You just have to see it all for what it is at the end of the day. And that it's a blessing from God. And that willingness, that sorrowfulness, and that truthfulness all has to be done within us before we can even do that. But to keep asking for it, there's nothing wrong with that. We should want this. We should desire this for ourselves. We should desire this for everyone that we know, all of our loved ones. And then you see, very lastly, the last point, verse 6, plea for his kingdom come. Do good to Zion. Zion is God's city in heaven, as the Old Testament prophets and psalmists all wrote about. Jerusalem is his earthly temple. That's where the temple is, or was, at this time. And then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, and then bowls will be offered. So what is this all about? It's about God restoring his kingdom, restoring his cities. It's about God restoring his praise and his worship as what we're all created for. And it's ultimately those two things of restoring his cities and restoring his worship are done by restoring his people. And that's what God's been doing. And that's what God continues to do. And that's what part of, I mean, that's the salvation of the Lord. We know that certainly Jesus paid it all because, as we know, like unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, and that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it, that that's our focus of faith. And that is God. The Son and the Father are one. And so, <coughs> please, confessions and vows for an inside-out transformation, a death to sin, regeneration, and restoration to God and his ways. All of this is part of our intimate, transparent relationship with God. It is a part of our salvation. And much like we've talked about before, it's not a one and done. This is an ongoing forever type of thing. You can't un- do the church. You can't unbe the church. You can't unbe his son or daughter. You can try and you can run away, but you can see that God has pursued those who are his and that God truly cares for those who are his. And that certainly 
for those who are his, they've tasted and seen that he's good. They've seen his steadfast love. They've tasted his kindness and his mercy and his goodness and his faithfulness. Things that we aren't always all the time. And so mercy, forgiveness, cleansing from sin, spiritual renewal, all of this is to restore our relationship of true worship and praise while welcoming his kingdom come. Achieving this through prayer and certainly transparency with God through repentance by grace. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, certainly I thank you for all the blessings that you've given us in this sermon. And in this, your word truly is a light and a lamp to our feet. May this land well, and may we understand how you desire to work within each and every one of us as your children and as your true believers. May we continue to um, follow you to the best of our abilities, certainly asking for mercy and grace along the way as we are almost guaranteed to stumble and fall. But Lord Jesus, I know that we are your sheep and that no one will snatch us out of your hand. And so even though we might get wayward at times, Lord, let us trust in our hearts that you will bring us back and that you will still forgive us regardless of our shortcomings. It's a little almost like the prodigal son story in a sense. And so here we had David, here we had his terrible acts, and then here he repents to you. And you still continue to use him. And you brought our Lord and Savior Jesus through his line as you even established a covenant with David to have the Messiah come through the kingship and, and line and lineage of David. And so, Lord Jesus, your word stands as truth. Your blessings continue to stand as truth for us. Continue to tune our hearts and our minds to your will and may we be used for your glory in whatever our hands and feet find to do. So in your name we pray. Amen.